This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm especially excited for today's polar extravaganza and there is not a better way to start it off than by sharing some amazing news from the polls. First off, Preet Shandy, better known as Polar Preet on Instagram, has been awarded this year's Explorer of the Year Award at the Scientific Exploration Society. This was for her Guinness World Record in which she became the longest solo, unsupported one-way ski journey, totaling 1,485 kilometers. She had a lot of challenges along the way, but she managed to get this record, and it's an absolutely amazing achievement for her and for Polar Expeditions. But there's a new bid that's starting next month by Sam Cox. He's a former Royal Marine, and he's set to leave and try to displace this record by being the longest unsupported ski journey. Now, Matt, we're going to be talking about it a lot on this episode with our guest. But as you yourself live in the Arctic, uh, it's where you are now. What is it about these polar expeditions that continues to captivate people to do these kind of attempts? Well, my, I mean, the, the thing that drew me to the Arctic was this sterile vastness. And it's a true kind of, pitch of that self-supported nature there's many environments we travel through where you have much more access to food to shelter these kind of things whereas i, I personally feel the, the polar regions give you that ultimate test of your own fortitude it is literally you versus the environment you have to take everything with you you require so that pre-planning is so paramount when we're talking about polar expeditions because the chance of resupply is zero the chance of help is actually really, really far away. So everything has to be planned. And I feel that, especially, I mean, he's a Royal Marine. He's obviously spent a lot of time in the ice and the snow. It really does pitch that against you, that you just feel, I have got to personally take on this environment. There's nothing in that environment that's going to help me. It is me, a human being, versus, you know, one of the last vast remaining wildernesses. So I, I believe that's where it sits. I think, you know, from traveling in the jungles, there's always access to things. Traveling in the desert, a little bit less, but there is still access, especially to things like food. The polar regions, barren wastelands of just ice, cold and misery. And I think that's what the real draw is. That kind of pure pitching yourself against Mother Nature in her most inhospitable places. It, and it really is, you know, there's nowhere. I've only been to the Arctic once with, with you, Matt, but there's nowhere quite like it. Uh, so... We've got an amazing guest for you guys. Joining us is Dr. Jamie Facer-Child. He is a senior A&E doctor, but he's so much more than that. He has crossed Antarctica, not just by foot, but also by kite ski as well. Jamie is the chief instructor for the Unique Expeditions Polar Course as well, and he's just an all-round legend. Jamie, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, and uh, thanks for inviting me to talk with you guys today i'm really excited man we're so happy to have you here and i wanted to start this show because it's so rare that we actually get to pull something out from when you were actually on expedition but you had a chat with with josh the other ue founder with matt uh while you were on the continent on your most recent expedition which was 2021 to 2022 season when you kite skied four thousand kilometers across the continent so I wanted to play this extract from you of how you were sort of describing what you were seeing. Uh, and then you could tell us all about, you know, what it sounds like, you know, two years on. So here is an extract from that call. 
so we we've come up through the mountains and they're they're impressive um right now on the plateau what's what's just breathtaking is just the 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 aura of antarctica the fact that everywhere you look is it's just this open expanse of of ice just all around you and it's uh it's like um you just you can see in every direction as far as you want to it's just and you see the curvature of the air um and so you just you just get this kind of i mean this feeling of how how kind of impressive antarctica is and how small we are in the world so how does that feel jamie you know two years <laughs> oh, on <laughs> i can't <laughs> It's, I can't remember what Josh and I chatted about. I just remember that we chatted, and uh, that was from inside our tent with minus forty degrees going on outside us. Um, but it's—I just remember like that was my second time in Antarctica, and it just shows how breathtaking, spectacular that continent is. How different it is from the rest of the world that we live in. The fact that even on the second time I went there, I'm still taken aback by just the expanse of whiteness the remoteness just the the absolute wilderness that you've got the privilege to be in and same for you matt living in norway it's like i think the snow's just fallen for you out there and it's all gone white and it's suddenly changed um what you see when you look out the window absolutely agree the 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 ice and snow that kind of descends on you really does do something it changes the entire environment obviously in these environments the ice and snow is there permanently um i'm not that lucky well maybe i am lucky enough to not have it all the time but when you see that when the when the kind of whiteness and the cold descends it it kind of does two things one it makes you feel very small just as you said jamie you feel almost insignificant in the vastness the other thing it does for me is open up adventure places i couldn't go before it was frozen I can now go. It opens up these kind of channels and these pathways that I can follow to explore. Hearing both of you just talk about the polar environment you know, with such love makes it even more alluring. And Jamie, listening to your chat with Josh, at the time it sounds like you were a bit out of it, you know, sat in a tent at minus 40 degrees. I can understand why. But it also seems like such an overwhelming environment. Yeah, and it was really early on as well. It was like, I think it was in the first week that we'd um, set off on our expedition, as far as I can remember. But Josh will, Josh will have the recording, so I'm sure it could be dated, but yeah. So Jamie, let's take it back to the beginning now. How did you get into expeditions? How did you become this all-round legend? You know, going to some incredible places and just doing incredible things. Well, I, it's from the Antarctic side, that, that just started when... I'd had some exposure to going to the cold. I'd been um, I'd been on an expedition in Sweden for two weeks, cross country skiing and uh, and sleeping out in the in the snow and building fire and eating some reindeer, which was really cool. And then in twenty twenty fourteen, I got picked to be part of an expedition to the South Pole in Antarctica. And it was a six-man expedition, myself, um, our team leader, Lou Rudd, Alex Brazier, Ollie Stoughton, Chris Brooks, and Al George. And we did some initial build-up training in Norway and Iceland. 
and we set off in 2016 as part of Spear 17, it was called. And uh, our initial aim had been to reach the South Pole, to to be a team of Brits to go and trek from Hercules Inlet to the South Pole, which is 730 miles. But the year, the year before us, a very courageous man called Henry Worsley set off to be the first to solo journey and trek across Antarctica. And very sadly, he passed away in his attempt because he he gave it everything and he got airlifted out right at the end um, to Chile. But um, in memory of what he set out to achieve and everything that he'd done with his life, because he'd, he'd lived a life of just not stopping, we decided to extend our expedition to cross Antarctica to the South Pole and then over the Titan Dome, one of the big bulges in the polar plateau that goes up to 4,000 metres and then descend that down the Shackleton Glacier, which had never really been crossed much before and onto the Ross Ice Shelf. And that, uh, when Lou Rudd put it to us and said, well, he'd been friends with Henry Worsley and he said, guys, I wonder if we just push our expedition a little bit further. Every single one of us was like, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And in all fairness, that second leg of the expedition, another 400 miles from the South Pole um, down to the base of the Shafton Glacier to where we got picked up, that was probably the most adventurous and testing terrain that we we faced. And it really brings alive that sense of adventure, which kind of, for me, I've I've always loved adventure. I'd never say no to anything. The outdoors opens up so much. Kind of growing up as a kid, just being able to leave the house and go outdoors is just a, an absolute playground. You can you can go explore. You can see how the world works. Me and my brother, when we were very young, used to run across the beach and climb up the cliffs and and do all sorts of like testing and challenging things. Um, and and yeah, when when you get the opportunity to to push the limits even further and go places like Antarctica, where you are so remote and you're completely reliant on your own skills, on your team, on your prior preparation and everything that you've taken, it it tests your um tests your resolve, it tests your um, it, every day is a challenge, which is hugely exciting and kind of ignites a feeling inside that just makes you feel alive. And I think as well, I'm sure we'll touch on it later, but um, but it's what makes me passionate about teaching wilderness medicine and, and helping give other people the opportunity to experience the same sense of adventure as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, me and Luke have talked a lot about this passion and teaching with passion is really what, where the honesty comes into it, the truth of the, the instruction when it comes from, from the passion. 
myself and Luke also chatted a couple of days ago about the progressions in expeditions and progressions in anything from elite sports. We've obviously got a pretty good progression in Antarctic travel. When we look back to the days of Scott and Amundsen and things, you know, they were true expeditions. It was like the bare bones of equipment and where we are. How do you how do you feel or how do you kind of see this transition from what was before literally reaching these places, that ultimate test of man, to now trying to break records using all of this modern equipment and, you know, where the safety line is drawn. You know, before we had this ultimate assumption of risk because it was just, you know, one man and his team against the elements with huge, uncumbersome materials and packaging boxes and everything we have to get to get the team from A to B. Now we're able to do that on a much, much smaller scale with much faster skis, much faster pulks, you know, kite skiing, all these kind of things that have come in. How do you how do you see that transition from the good old days to uh, to now? I mean, at the at the face of it, it is just incredible what humans can achieve, and that there are no limits. Like every time people achieve something, the next person is just pushing to to take it further. I mean, it's having crossed Antarctica with the kit and equipment we had. I just have to take my hat off to Shackleton, Scott, and Armiston, the people who who went with much heavier kit. They were just eating seal meat for days on end. They didn't have any variety. They're camping out over winter. They're spending two years of their life down there, spending years more in the planning. I mean, the the toughness and and the challenges that they faced were clearly way way more than what we face today and yeah i would i i wouldn't want to be on on scott's expedition not just because uh they didn't make it back but also just the the hardship that he put them through um but uh but yeah, it is, it's incredible what we can do now. And we have to keep chasing for, for new records. It's certainly a, an interesting world now when you look at social media and the competition it creates and just walking an extra mile. Sometimes people think they've got another record and all they've done is the same as the person before, but walked an extra mile. Um, but there are people out there who are really pushing things and I I heard um Paula Preet you mentioned her at the beginning I heard her talk and she's an inspiring girl I mean what she's achieved is fantastic and I remember just hearing how she grew up in Southall with her family and never really had the same opportunity that I did growing up to explore the outdoors and for for her to have taken things to the level that she has and to have felt that sense of adventure is really, really cool. And, um, and I'm sure she's going to keep on pushing and doing more things. Um, but yeah, we are, we are very lucky to have the kit and equipment that we do and the motorized vehicles and the assistance and support. And one of the things that you just mentioned, Matt, was the element of risk. Mm. And for me, the the excitement and what makes it a challenge is that you're taking a risk. 
And I know the, the first major expedition that I took, which was probably the biggest risk ever, was myself, my friend at 21, decided to row across the Indian Ocean, which was 3,600 miles of, of two of us who had never learned how to spend a night at sea set off and use pure determination, enthusiasm, and training to get ourselves across. Uh, we capsized, we saw 50-foot waves, we went through like sores and pains, got blown back by the wind for two weeks and carried on going. And that, that was a huge risk. We had very little support, but that's what made it exciting. And it also, we never doubted ourselves. We felt um, whatever we faced, we would be able to come up against. And, and it's only when we take a risk that we understand ourselves deeper and that we become better at what we do and we learn new things. And I think it's a really important aspect, which is kind of getting overshadowed by the need for everything to be safe and controlled. But it's only when things go out of control that you really are challenged and testing your limits. And so risk risk is a really important aspect where people get the most that they can possibly get from adventure from. And controlling that risk is a spectrum of see lack of common sense or taking silly risks isn't going to help anyone. But um but I'd encourage everyone to trust their judgment and to do and to do what tests themselves. I think the the concept of knowing where your barriers are and pushing them. Yeah, completely. And that's and there's never an age at which that stops as well. There's never an age at which you can't learn more about yourself or more about the world and just carry on exploring. And, and Jamie, you know, let's talk about, obviously, we, we've got two different expeditions to talk about. We, we could even talk about, uh, you know, rowing across the Indian Ocean, but I think you're going to have to come back for another one just on that, because that just sounds like an entirely, you know, different sort of adventure. But, you know, doing this, you know, this first Antarctica crossing, you've done all this training that you've done, but how do you, how do you prepare yourself for these expeditions? Like, can you tell us a bit more about what training you actually did? Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, going right back to, <laughs> to the to the basics of any polar expedition, essentially we're pulling, we're manhauling, we're pulling sledges that are 120 kilos, 150 kilos in weight with all our food, fuel, tents, clothing, spares, everything in, and you really need to be physically tough and robust to be able to do that. It's we're travelling at two, three miles an hour, step after step, 11 hours a day, just this weight of this sledge wanting to pull us backwards. And so the physical aspect was huge. We did a lot of tyre hauling. So you get a Land Rover tyre and you put some rope to it and attach it to your harness and you just drag it through fields, over gravel, wherever you go. I was um, in Birmingham at the time and I'd go... I'd just take it running with me and my Labrador Black Lab that we had at the time. He'd love it. He'd run along, find sticks to to just put in his mouth and run next to me. And um, and everyone, <laughs> I'd be running around the 
the um, park and people would just be like, mate, what are you doing? Yeah, Did what's you know going on? Tire you? <laughs> and I'm like overtaking people who are running as well. And they're like, mate, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> that is a standard day in Birmingham, though. I've got to be honest. That's brilliant. I mean, I come from a culture where people tie tires to the backs of the dogs for sled training, so I've never really seen the humans dragging them around and the dogs with a stick. It's normally the other way around, right? <laughs> yeah, especially in Birmingham. But it gets people talking. It gets people, and then they then they go onto the website that's set up and they get interested, and it's it's just great. Um, but physical, yeah, you've got to. Your body has to be robust for any expedition. It's not just fitness. It's about robustness. Mm. And it, you've got to have strong muscles. You've got to be cardiovascularly fit. But your joints, your your muscles have to be able to withstand that repetition, that continuity. Um, and so you have to put yourself through through those kind of exercises. So, yeah, physically and and I've always loved keeping fit and active. I think it's great. The body feels like everything's working. Um, so I'd swim, I'd run, I'd tie a haul, I'd go to the gym and do squats and deadlifts and make sure the core and the lower body is all tough. But the there's so much more, so much more that makes an expedition. And we had a great expedition leader, Lou Rudd, who looked at the route, the weather, um, had to do various planning my particular role was the medic for the expedition so i planned all the medications that we would take and the other kit and equipment that we would need having some important like trauma kit in case of that worst case scenario someone like fell down a crevasse broke a leg hit their heads any kind of thing like that um the common things like the blisters the aches and pains having painkillers antibiotics uh dressings and then dealing with the cold as well having a plan for like frostbite hypothermia which are pretty pertinent and frostbite which all the textbooks say you should never get frostbite because it's preventable all you have to do is keep your your areas warm particularly your fingers and your toes and it's one of those elements where you're on an expedition and say so you've got 60 mile per hour winds, it's minus 50, you're getting the tent up. And the most important thing is getting that tent up. You mm. can't, that's your shelter, you're out in the elements and putting the snow valens on and your hands are starting to get cold because you've been in, out in those conditions. You've stopped skiing, you're, you're losing your body heat now because you're not keeping the muscles going and slowly as you're piling snow on the snow valens your hands are getting colder and colder you can feel the tips just going a little bit numb and you know you need to get into the tent and warm them up but you've just got that extra another two minutes just to make sure it's all secure before you get in um and jimmy so, yeah, what, what is a snow valen can you just let us know yeah so the tents in in these conditions you have at the base of the tent you've got a flap that attaches and you pull those flaps out and cover them with snow so that you form an insulation insulated layer that's um preventing any wind from cutting in underneath the tent or getting in and it just provides a lot more security for the tent it's less likely to blow away it's more secure it keeps it warmer um yeah really really important and um 
yeah, on uh, on my second expedition, I'll tell you just how important it is. We we got given um these tents that um that were the here on three um here on three tents that we needed to take. So we set them up and then we realized that they'd given us the version without the valon. Oops. Um without the flap. So we really quickly had to be like we we only we had like very little time before the expedition started, so we had to very quickly be like, "You've given us the wrong tents. We need these other ones," and quickly swap them out because going up to those conditions without that extra feature on the tent would just be one. It'd be horrendously, horrendously cold inside the tent, mm. but it would just make it the conditions very, very tricky. I'm not saying possible because I believe that almost anything's possible when you really try, but yeah, it wouldn't have been pleasant. And, yeah. Why, why would yeah. you want to do it? That's the thing. So you've walked us through that, that evening bit of staying up camp, but how does it work? Cause I'm guessing for those of you that don't know, you know, the, the Antarctica has this sort of six month cycle of constant daylight and then constant darkness. And you know, there's that bit in the middle either side. I'm guessing you're doing this, in their summer where it's constant daylight but how does what would your standard day be you know when you're walking on the ice yeah absolutely so we go november to january so the summer down there it's it's 24 7 daylight and just the very different between kiting and man hauling man hauling what we would do is we'd have the the tents we'd wake up at probably uh, 6 a.m get some breakfast on the go so you just start melting ice in your kettle into boiling water mixing it with your breakfast and then you're just getting ready for the day if you've got some blisters just put some dressings on before putting your boots on uh packing away all your sleeping bags sleeping stuff and then taking everything out the tent packing it into the sledges taking the tent down as the last thing and then you're stood there ready to go importantly when you're a six-man team two in a tent then you need everyone to be out and ready on the dot so that no one's waiting around and getting cold for the other people. So timing's very important when you're in a team and in separate tents. Once that's down, then we'd take it in turns. The front person would take the compass and they would walk towards the South Pole on the bearing that was, it changed every day because there's a slight shift in the magnetic um needle as you get close to the south pole and they would walk for an hour and then every hour we would stop for a 10 minute break put a big warm puffer jacket on and get some hot water and some snacks down us and then we'd pack that away again um and set off and you just slide your skis one after the other staying in a line following the man in front rotating and we'd do 10 11 hours of of that a day cover 20 to 30 miles or kind of on average 15 nautical miles which are a little bit further than statute miles mm. and then once we finished we'd finish um and it's just about getting that tent up quickly all three tents would go up one person would jump inside the tent and get some hot water boiling by melting ice again they'd get the cooker on while the second person made sure the tent was nice and secure you dig a foot well in the porch of the tent so that you can sit 
at the edge of the tent with your feet dangling down into a bit of a footwell so you can give your feet a quick clean make sure that they're nice and hygienic take your boots off and then you're lying on your on top of your sleeping bag chatting to each other having some food chilling making some repairs because there's always like little nuances that come up um and i shared a tent with alex he's he's such a great guy full of energy full of enthusiasm and he luckily brought on his phone some downloads of brooklyn 99 the series the comedy series well, that's so a good one watch, to have <laughs> yeah it's like 20 minutes long we'd watch some of them have a laugh um and and then every every nor every um degree line that we cross which is 60 nautical miles we'd get into uh the leader's tent and all six of us would be in there we'd do a little shot of some spirit just to celebrate crossing another degree line um we'll have a chat and a catch up and keep that team spirit going um and then you just look forward to the next day of walking again and the thing with man hauling is that whether it's minus 20, whether it's minus 40, whether it's minus 60, whether it's 10 knots of wind, whether it's 30 knots of wind, you just, you're just walking. You just put the gear on. Sometimes you can wear sunglasses very, very rarely. Most of the time you're wearing goggles and a face mask. Um, and you just, if the wind's strong, you put your hood up, you you just close yourself off from that hostile environment, put your head down and just put one step forward. When it's nice and sunny and the wind's down, then you can drop the hood and chat to each other. But there's there's not really a day where it's almost almost any condition you can manhole in. You just have to put yourself through it. Yeah. And it's not always pleasant, but you can do it. Very different to kiting where with the kites, you're so reliant on the wind direction, the wind speed and the visibility. And I'm sure you've got some questions on that, but I'll, I'll tell you now, it's uh, it's completely different. Every day is, it's, the routine is a lot different because you can't just guarantee to wake up at set time, get the kites ready and get kiting. You have to check the weather regularly. You have to think what the weather's doing the next few days. If you get two days of good weather and you know it's going to be bad, then you might as well smash out some six, eight-hour days and get lots of distance in because you know you're going to be stuck in the tent maybe afterwards. Um, with two of us on that expedition, it's brilliant. I mean, we were we were buddies in that tent having a laugh, um, playing some backgammon together. Justin, uh, who is an absolute, absolute legend. I mean... The guy is incredible. He's always got a story. He's always super positive, and he just he just loves adventure as well. And he uh, he kind of kept that tent buzzing. He'd be up in the morning getting breakfast on. Um, I'd go outside the tent and check the wind was as it said it was, and get the kites laid out with the lines run out. So you've got these massive eighteen meter kites which you can fly in kind of five knots of wind so you can still make little bits of progress even when the wind is so light and i'd be running these 50 meter lines out over the snow making sure they weren't knotted and tangled and then i'd like it would take maybe an hour and a half to just sort the kites out have them ready to go and on a couple of occasions i'd have the kites ready and then the wind would change oh. and i'd be like oh man 
and Justin, legend that he is, would just be like, hey, don't worry about it. It just is what it is. And um, we'd just wait and see if the wind changed. And once you get going with a kite, though, it's it's amazing. It's You've got the wind just putting you along. We've still got these heavy... We had kind of 200 kilogram sledges with the kites because we had more kit and equipment. Um, so you've got this kite harnessing the power of the wind and it's pulling you on your skis, which is just blissful kind of to be pulled along when it's all going well. And you've got this sledge rattling away behind you. Um, and at times you get gusts of wind that pick you up off the ground. So I, I had it once where. So when you're going along, you're just flying the kite or letting it hold its sail position and pull you along if if the wind is just right. And then every so often, you'd stop and just look behind you and check with with Justin how we're getting on, see that we're not drifting too far apart, that the visibility is still good. And I'm there waiting, uh, looking back for him. This gust of wind just picks up my kite. I get lifted. 10 feet up into the air off the ground <sighs> it's my sledge dangling down anchoring me to the ground me just with my skis loose under my feet and me just hanging from this kite and obviously you just have to hold it yeah. and, and let let it come back down to ground uh, you don't want to be doing anything stupid pulling on anything or tugging it because then you just crash but, yeah. um, knowing you Jamie I'm guessing you were smiling while this were happening you're like oh my god this is so cool is, is how I imagine you being it was great yeah it was great <laughs> uh, but yeah the kite the kiting it is it can be quite dangerous you can get thrown around by the gusts of wind um, but really good fun and a lot more to think about I would say the man hauling Matt is actually in an Arctic storm right now, so he's just dropped out of signal. But Jamie, one thing we were both interested in is what is the difference between when you're walking with a pole versus skiing with a pole? Obviously, you've got a lot more kit. It's 100 kilos versus 200 kilos, uh, 200 kilos when you're with the kite ski. And then obviously, there are the dangers uh, on both. But on a good day, when you've got good winds, how far can you travel on a kite ski? Yeah, so we, I think the biggest day that we hit when we were kiting was about a 60 mile day. And that was, we achieved that in five, five, six hours. And so we were like, we've smashed 60 miles, um, 60 nautical miles. And like, hurrah, let's put the tent up and enjoy some food and just chat. And and, uh, the thing with kiting as well is your, Whereas manhauling, you're pushing your muscles and you're generating a lot of internal heat. Kiting, you get a lot colder. You feel the cold just cut into your bones a lot more because you're you're using the wind power rather than your own muscle power a lot more. So you need a strong core. You need to be... Fitness is always important because it just makes your body more able to cope with anything. But um, but kiting, we would kite in more layers than we would manhaul and sometimes have to put the proper big, big outer jacket on. Um, your hands holding the bar get particularly cold because you're stretching your arms out in front of you. They're getting less blood in circulation. Um, and so you have to 
always be dropping them off the bar just so shakes and bloods flow to them. So you, if uh, on a on a nice day when the sun's up and the wind's right, you can. We we never did um, ten hour days kiting just because we didn't need to because you we were covering the distance and I know we um, we had to change our route slightly from the initial plan because of timings and wind but we yeah we were generally covering a good twenty thirty miles a day um, in half the time that you would when you're man hauling um, but you use a lot more time up setting the kite up and dealing with problems with the kite which so it's there are more complications and a lot less harder to have a routine and just consistency but then it reaps its rewards by on a good day you you completely make up for it because you just cover so much more than what you would do when you're man hauling yeah you know you've you talked a lot about this kind of physical robustness um What's the mental robustness like? Because there's an awful lot to consider here. It's you are very much alone on an extremely hostile environment. How how did you kind of deal with those issues? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mental robustness is as important or more important than physical robustness. And physical robustness very easy to talk about. You can is something that anyone can train to have um and it's about putting the right training in mental robustness i mean my initial degree before medicine was in psychology so i love this kind of stuff but um but there's so many aspects to it that are variable and the most important is that you have to want to be there you have to want to be with the people you're with and you have to want the goal more than you want to be at home in a warm bed waking up and strolling down to a coffee shop or whatever um so most important is just your attitude because that's that's where you draw a lot of mental robustness from i think they do talk about training mental mental robustness but it's a very fluid state of mind it's something that somewhat no matter i just as a um an example kind of people might people might train to be very mentally robust and set off on something and then i know um and then a, a drama happens back home and it completely changes your mindset and what you were setting out to achieve so it's it's something that's that's quite fluid and it's a reason why on expedition i quite like the the attitude the old school attitude if you go on expedition and it's about you against the elements and you call home once a week rather than i mean we have the capability now of just calling home or uh messaging on the garmin in reach every day and that that link it might distract you from mm. being focused on the task which is where a lot of that strength comes from but then a lot of people draw strength from being able to communicate back home. So everyone's different. Um, 
Yeah, it's difficult. Lots of people who you're communicating with back home, doesn't it? You know, there's one thing, you know, when we're running expeditions out in the jungle, I have usually daily contact with fixers in country to get updates on weathers and things like that, especially on remote islands and beaches. I'm interested in, you know, what the ocean's doing, what's coming in. But in the same time, if I was using that contact to contact family, I'm going to get, you know, my poor missus who's at home with the kids and life's not going that well and you're off swanning away on holiday again. And, you know, it can. It does have a, a kind of detrimental effect to your mental state, especially when the expedition ultimately relies on that. You know, your mental fortitude is the only thing that gets you out of that warm sleeping bag to go out there and faff around with kite lines for the next hour and a half and then have to reset them again because the winds change direction. Mentally, we need to keep ourselves in the right state of mind at all times because as soon as you drop off, you start to make rash decisions, you start to question your decisions and that just grows more and more problems yeah completely and you you see it happen sometimes so it's um i was very lucky with the guys i was with on well all the expeditions that i've done just in, incredible guys and kind of there's a lot of a lot comes around to positivity and optimism as just being characteristics that create mental robustness um and and always always thinking that whatever challenges you face it's only going to get better as long as you push through it in in regard to expeditioning on antarctica what what is it in regards of actually getting the permits you know maybe you didn't have a lot to do with these if you were they were kind of pre-organized expeditions but it's not the easiest place to explore no it's not no it uh there's the biggest limiting factor in antarctica is the cost and that's obviously opening up more and more um permits come through the foreign and commonwealth office and uh justin applied for them and lou rudd applied for them for us and that was it was actually quite straightforward um but yeah you have to the cost goes into it luckily we got sponsorship because as I said, the the big limiter is how much it costs to go there, both in terms of planning our expedition elements, the amount of food and fuel and kit and equipment we need, but then the costs of getting into Antarctica, getting out of Antarctica um, and being um, being covered in terms of medical rescue if there was a major drama, which luckily didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, we uh, when we reached the south, when Justin and I reached the South Pole, we um, we had a group of tourists who were flown in by Airly, the company based down there. there about six or eight of them came in, so we'd we'd arrived and we had a whole day of just two of us being based at the South Pole with the small little Airly crew, and then the next day, these tourists rocked up, and they're all. Um, they're all successful like made made the money and they've flown in and the excitement on their faces just to to get flown to the south pole was really really cool um so it is it's so nice to see that people can experience such such a part of the world which is so remote but also it's it's crazy now how um, how these remote parts are, are not becoming remote anymore as well. 
And a big part of our expedition, uh, the kiting expedition, was about sustainable travel, using the kites and the wind to to cross Antarctica, such like the most hostile place on Earth. And we were sponsored by HP, um, who uh, is part of their sustainable sustainability program. And really, we can see so much of our planet changing around us in in our own lifetimes. It changes so drastic. And Antarctica, the ice sheet is melting and, and global warming and everything is changing so much. It's really, really important to start thinking about how we look after our planet and what we can do and just thinking of alternative ways that we can do things. And Jamie, you know, we, it's such an important point and we keep pushing this thing on the podcast, you know, of being sustainable and, and having this sort of greater vision of what this expedition really could mean. And citizen science has become a much bigger part of the expedition world. You know, the Explore Conference often goes on about, you know, making sure that you're, you know, providing something more than just for yourself. Now, if I'm right in thinking, you had scientific aims on the kite skiing expedition. Can you just explain to us first what those were and how did you find having those extra tasks to do apart from, you know, on top of actually having to bloody get there as well? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's we we push things further with NASA and ESA on the kiting expedition, but research or just doing more with the expeditions has always been something that I've wanted to do. When Tace and I first rode across the Indian Ocean, we recorded some data for Earthwatch on the oceans, um, although it wasn't that useful for them. We were only 21 and very exhausted with the rowing. And then but you tried, crossing, you tried. <laughs> we tried, yeah. And then um, with Spear 17 crossing Antarctica, we did some human physiology research, looking at the change in our body composition, our adaptation to the cold uh, with Coventry University, which I set up with Chris Imray. And then we took things further in this kiting expedition and we got NASA involved and ESA involved. And Justin spoke to, went out to Stanford University and uh, the University of California and we looked at biological stuff so every week like even before and when we got back from the expedition we'd do finger prick blood tests to look at things saliva samples stool and urine samples and when we were on the ice we carried that on so every week we'd do these tests and it was actually um Stanford University made it very straightforward the the sample pots were small and lightweight and uh, they only, I mean, their technology is fantastic. They only needed small samples of everything to be able to analyze a whole lot of stuff. Mm. So we did that biological data. We had um, Garmin watches tracking our heart rate and our sleep and our energy levels. We had um, every week as well, we looked at some psychological stuff so we'd do some voice recordings and that went to the university of california to look at um at how they they were gauging our psychological state based off the questions and how we answered them and our tone of voice and then isa got involved as well and that was a bit more about the climate change and we recorded like real live data the temperature and wind speed at 
the surface of the ice where we were so that they could compare it to their satellite data and see how it matched up. So we recorded a whole lot of data and it did, it had its impact. It, it changed the, the focus of the expedition and, and some, um, some days it, it took up a bit of time that, that was taken away from the expedition, but it was all really exciting to do. And it, it was great to be able to provide that. And I know Justin's, um, so all that data takes a while to, to get processed and written up and analyzed. So that's still in the, in going on, but I know Justin's following up on some of those things cause he's, um, putting it together into a book that he's going to, uh, produce on the expedition. Fantastic. So what's next, mate? Are you planning on heading back down? I mean, I'd love to come with you. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> are you, um, I'm not, I mean, I've seen you skiing, Jamie, and I wasn't that impressed. So if you, made, oh! <laughs> I've seen him sliding down on his backside from a very small hill outside the cabin up here. So, um, yeah, but I would, I mean, what is next? What's, I mean, you've got an incredible repertoire of expeditions that you've done. Um, where is the passion going next? So, I mean, one of the, I mean, I've got to say, Matt, when I came out to your place earlier this year in March and, and with unique expeditions, we ran the polar medicine course. That that for me was so so exciting and a real pleasure to pass on a lot of experience and help uh, provide a safe environment for other people to come and experience that and learn and to see other people's enthusiasm. Just like getting into the snow and experiencing the cold and. And uh, that snow hole that they ended up sleeping in was pretty spectacular, I gotta say. Um, so yeah, I've got I've got a lot of passion for doing doing more teaching and and providing more people with experience. Expeditions are are always exciting. I mean, it's it's it has always been a, a balance between getting through training because a lot of the skills in medicine come from come from the fact that I'm an A&E doctor and I've done nine years of doctoring and seen so many patients in the NHS and although expedition medicine is completely different to hospital-based medicine it's that patient exposure that's always vital um, and there's you can't rush that it just comes with time so i'm in the in the balance of working in the hospital doing that and seeing what other expeditions come around the corner i'd love to go back to antarctica i know uh, justin would love to uh he was talking to the some people in malta about taking them to the south pole which would be really exciting but obviously some places uh, have their own way of life and time known and things don't happen that quickly. But, um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's just a whole lot of things to, to be doing. Yeah. Jamie, there's so much more we could talk about, you know, hopefully we'll get you back soon to, to get you on the main series, but also I want to get you on the mini series and we can like really delve deep into particular topics, but to wrap it all up, one of the new things we're doing is having this sort of expedition essentials questions. I've got two questions for you. First off is, 
you know, depending where you are, let's make it polar. What are the three things that you, you know, are a must have that you bring with you on an expedition? Yeah, really, really good. So, I mean, you've got your, you've got your Billy Basics essentials, which I'm going to presume that you've got anyway. Because should, yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Go ahead you... without, <laughs> without enough food, fuel and all of that jazz. Um, so essentials and they tie into the whole mental robustness it's all about um the things that are personal to you that you're going to enjoy and the in all these hostile places the more the more comfortable you can feel and the more you can feel that you're facing that challenge of the elements and winning then it it just makes you stronger facing them so um taking a phone full of entertainment so i took my my iphone with me with uh spotify music on with some downloaded films and stuff and you can just plug in when you're when you're going along we had these senna helmets which bluetooth to your phone and also had comms up to a kilometer between justin and i and you can just tap it and you're walking along you can listen to audio books or music Audiobook's fantastic. So, um, so yeah, a, a phone full of entertainment, definitely. Um, and then I took with me as well in, uh, a mini presso, which is a little coffee-making hand pump machine. And for me, I, I love a good coffee. And <laughs> I, I could go for three months easily without having a coffee, but it was carrying that extra half a kilo in weight and then you add on the coffee beans and everything you're it's it's that thing where you know that taking that extra weight is worth it because it when you use it it gives you that little bit of joy and i'd have like a little espresso once a week not every day because it's that little treat just makes you feel uh feel like you you're just getting in touch with with something you like for you um and um and thirdly i'd always take something a a game that you can play with whoever you're with because ultimately it's teamwork that gets you across it's teamwork that makes it the most enjoyable experience so justin and i would play backgammon um it's Backgammon is a very good game of choice because it's all about the roll of the dice. So there's a lot of luck involved, but a little bit of skill. Yeah. Any games that are too skillful become competitive and stressful. In a, I in a Mono- Monopoly would not be a good idea. No, Monopoly would be the worst <laughs> idea. Because, like Tensions might already be you're sharing a tent with one person for such a long time. You've got to pick a game where it's not it's not too easy, but it's not too hard and you're not overly competitive about, but you've got to have a game to play with who you're with. Um, another one I love is Jungle Speed. It's like a fast reaction game. Um, but again, like everyone will, everyone will have. So that's what I would take. I'd take love it. that gammon, I'd take my iPhone and I'd take my mini presso. There, there you go. And my final question for you is, you know, we've talked a lot about like all the different things that, you know, you can do to prepare. But what is for the people that, you know, as we said, are still captivated by the polar regions and adventure in general? 
what would be like your one piece of advice to someone that wants to be an explorer still? Yeah, you just just get out there, go to places like the the RGS, feel inspired by other people's expeditions, talk to people, and there's. I mean, I've been I've been lucky. I've been um, I've spoken to people at the right time and got involved with things, but it's only come from having enthusiasm and talking to people and then proving that I had the capability to to be worth like worth taking on an expedition. So yeah, the the medical skills that I bring are certainly hugely valuable. It's great to have a doctor anywhere because you never know what can go wrong. But there's no point having a doctor who can't look after themselves or doesn't add something else with their skill set. So um and yeah the yeah talking to people with the right attitude will always get you where you want to go that's awesome thank you so much thanks so much for coming on the show absolute pleasure yeah guys i really hope you enjoy this episode of medicine on the frontier as always it's so exciting to bring you guys new content with really exciting guests and at the time of editing this on sunday the 12th of november we have just surpassed a thousand all-time downloads across the series it's so exciting to see that you guys are engaging with it as you are and we're only just getting started we've got so much more to bring you we've got a lot of exciting guests to bring the year to an end so next week matt and i are doing a mini series on water whether it's purifying it where to find it and how to deal with it as well as how to carry it and there are tips and tricks from doing expeditions all over the world and in the week after that we have got dr timogen tan joining us he's known as the survival doctor on instagram he's a canadian army veteran turned doctor with a special interest in survival medicine in 2021 he placed third in the ninth series of the history channel and netflix show alone he survived 63 days in the Canadian wilderness and he's now working on a new and exciting project. So just in the next two weeks, we've got two incredible episodes. Well, I think they're incredible at least, and I've listened to them. So guys, make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Please rate the show and just follow along. Get involved. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want us to talk about as we explore medicine on the frontier. 